Danny, for our prayer tonight, and again, thank you for being with us, and we're very grateful for those who are online following along, and we hope that you'll get your Bible and open it up to the book of Job. We're looking at Job chapter 25 and 26 today, though I'll take a moment, uh, it'll be a moment or so before I get to that, because I want to talk a little bit about our uh, uh, questions that we had, particularly in, ver in chapter 24. I won't spend a lot of time with that. But if you have the questions in front of you, then it might be of help to you. And then there are questions out there in the foyer for you, with, which would uh, take us into chapter 25, 26. I don't know, we may have done 27. We will do 27 for sure. But by this particular point in time, it really is uh, all about Job. Uh, I say that because up to this point in time, they've been debating back and forth, Elihu, uh, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz would discuss these matters, and Job would respond, and another would speak, and Job would respond. But it's going to get to the point where it's just Job, and um, it's, we're getting to that closely. We're in the third cycle of speeches, you'll remember, there were three of these, and um, uh, this began for us back uh, in chapter 22. So this is the last cycle of speeches. This particular matter is a little unusual. I'm back in 24 to recap a little bit before I go to 25. I don't know that I finished all of this chapter. I certainly didn't say all that I would like to have said about it. But um, one of the issues that's involved in chapter 24 is Job's question, why didn't God deal with this? And you'll remember we talked about that why doesn't God deal with the problems that's going on here? If God would deal with these problems, people would believe in him. Job is trying to come to grips with this matter, especially through the throes of deep suffering, deep uh, physical pain. And the end is very near for all practical purposes, though Satan is not allowed to take Job's life. Job will live, but he'll live through this excruci excruciating suffering. And that's what this book is about basically about the idea, why do the innocent suffer? And the, the takeaway from this great book is that if the innocent and when the innocent do suffer, that we are to be faithful to God even through suffering and even through times of difficulty and trial. We must remain faithful to God to be pleasing in the sight of God. We must not fail that test. Job was successful in overcoming the problems of temptation and the trial, and he was successful in being faithful to God. And we want to keep emphasizing that. Some of the questions on our uh, question sheet came up uh, that I thought I might talk just a little bit about. Question two on chapter 24, list five sins against humanity that Job complains about that seemingly go unpunished in man's view. And that really comes from verses 2 and 4. You'll remember the landmarks and the flocks that are stolen and that uh, they push the needy aside and the orphan and the widow. Uh, the real question that I have in mind is 7. And on 7, I really didn't explain much because I didn't feel like we're really ready uh, for 7. But I want you to notice all the way through the course of verse 24 that Job is talking about the idea, not the fact, but the idea that God sees all this bad stuff going on, doesn't do anything about it. Notice what he says in verse 12. For the city, uh, from the city men groan, and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not pay attention to folly. See, that's his, that's his point right now. 
um, uh, suffering takes place, innocent people suffer, wicked people take advantage of the innocent people, they steal their flocks, they steal their herds, they take advantage of widows, they take advantage of orphans. Where is God in all of this particular matter? By the time you get to 13 through 17, then he starts listing some sins that are going on, and I might add, these sins are still going on, aren't they? You see, man and his problem is still the same. I don't care if you're studying the most ancient book, such as Job, or you're reading today's newspaper. Man's problem is still the same, and the problem is sin. And these sins that he describes in 13 through 17 are still being done by people today. And we talked about the pre-Christian Gentiles in Romans chapter 1 and how that Paul illustrates that particular matter. Now, by the time you get to verse 18, he changes the tone. The thought changes. And we made mention of this, though we weren't able to really do it justice. They are insignificant on the surface of the water. Their portion is cursed on the earth. They do not turn toward the vineyards. Drought and heath consume the snow waters. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. God does know about these matters. God will hold those guilty accountable. This has led some people to say that this really is Zophar's speech, his third speech. And we didn't catch it. In other words, Zophar does not have a third speech. And so we may have missed it in uh, verse 18. I don't know that I would say that. I'm not going to say that, but I wrote this question and so I pose it for your consideration. As you read verses 17 through 25, Read also 27, 13 through 23. We'll get to that later. Does this not sound more like someone like Zophar than Job? And so I'm asking it as a thought question. Is it possible that without telling us, the one who writes down Job is giving us Zophar's words? Note that he is not mentioned again in the book. Is inspiration harmed simply because a writer does not list who said something and places words in an unusual arrangement? What do you think about that? And what I'm thinking about is inspiration now. Is there any issue in inspiration? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm. I agree. I agree totally. Now, if you pick up a commentary on Job, though, this is going to come up, and that's why I'm letting you know about it in our class, and we have the opportunity to talk it over and to consider it. Uh, they're going to say that somebody added this later or they're going to say that uh, there was a mistake made in the text or they're going to say that somehow or another this is Zophar doing the speaking and he didn't tell us it was Zophar. I don't know any of that. In fact, I would say no to all of the above. 
I would say that this is Job's speech. Now, we have seen him do this before, and that's why I'm holding off on chapter 27. We've seen him do this before. He's really talking about sadness and grief and suffering and real depression. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the chapter, he just bursts in confidence with God or about God. And so that's the way it's been with regard to Job. And a lot of this can be attributed to the suffering that he's going through. And, um, but we can have total faith and confidence that what we have has been accurately recorded and given to us. And so it's a good thought question for us to be aware of because if you read a commentary, that's what they're going to say. They're going to say, this is Zophar really speaking here in verse 18. I don't think so. And this is the rationale that they'll give you in the latter portion of verse 7. Briefly list a few of the things that happened to the arrogant, uh, mighty, and then of course God basically is going to punish them because of their uh, wickedness and their sin. So, you know, this doesn't sound like Job. It sounds like somebody else. But really it's the same thing. Job does this over and over again. It's not a new thing. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, for the morning is the same to him as thick darkness, for he is familiar with the terrors of thick darkness. Well, that sounds like Job, doesn't it? That's the very thing that Job has been saying all along. I just want, you may want in the margin of your Bible, if you're taking notes like I do, pencil in uh, Zophar with a question mark. Not that this is Zophar's speech at all, but that's what they're going to say about it, that this belongs to Zophar. But I don't see it. Um, I see Job as... Uh, questioning his friends. In fact, let me take another brief moment to analyze this paragraph. And um, I'm talking about Job 24, and I'm looking at uh, uh, this matter at about verse 19 and 20. A mother will forget him. The worm feeds sweetly till he is no longer uh, remembered, and wickedness will be broken like a tree. Uh, my translation has, quest has um, quotation marks here. Does anyone have quotation marks here? You, may, you know quotation marks, the little things at the top, little marks at the top of the text, quotation marks. Well, what they're saying, these translators are saying, is that these quotation marks, he's quoting somebody else. This is not Job. This is somebody else other than Job. And so um, Job is quoting them. And in fact, Job is saying, you say that. So it's a difficult text. It's a difficult text. It's a difficult part of the Bible. But I think that's probably more reasonable to say that than to say somebody else wrote it or somebody else said it. All right, let's go on to chapter 25 unless we have some further explanation or discussion about the matter. And we'll look at uh, the 25th chapter of the book of Job. And here we have Bildad. Bildad gives a speech, his third speech and final speech. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, Dominion and all belong to him. And so what you can tell already what his point is going to be, right? What is his point? That's it. God is great. The majesty of God. Now, when they get on points like this, they're accurate. They're right about that. The problem with these three guys is that they're wrong on the application of this. 
when they want to make application to Job, they've missed it. They've missed the point. With regard to the greatness of God and the horror of sin, they're pretty well right on the mark on these things. So Bildad says, dominion and all belong to him. Him refers to God. He's talking about the majesty of God. In my translation, they have him capitalized, which we try to capitalize proper names and that kind of thing. And, and sometimes when the uh, pronoun refers back to a deity or something like that, they'll capitalize that. Not always, but they did here. Who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops? Verse 13. Did you know God had troops? The angels. I think he's talking about angels here. The troops are the angels. And the angels are, are without number. And upon whom does his light not rise? Is there any number to his troops? Verse 3. Is there any limit to the angels of glory? Well, <clears throat> I, I would say not. I would say not. The... Um, uh, there's so much said in the Bible about the angels, I'm tempted to go, why don't we? Matthew 25, Matthew 25. Let me make this point, and then we'll take comments and questions, which I'm happy to do that. In Matthew chapter 25, the New Testament. Yeah, well, it's about all the holy angels. And I don't know about how many, uh, but he says uh, here in Matthew 25, let's see if I can find it over here. And uh, let's see. Well, 31 is it, it pretty good, isn't it? That's a pretty good verse. Matthew 25 and 31. Army. Yeah. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. I'm in Matthew 25, 31. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, I was talking about the second coming of Christ, which is not my subject tonight. But I've come across this point about angels, and that is. And so when Christ comes again, all the angels are coming with him. Now, that's got to be... <laughs> yeah, that's got to be something else now. All the angels are coming. Now, if, if he's right about this, they are without number. And verse 3, and I suspect he is, as we have references to angels in a number of passages of the, of the gospel accounts. Is there any number to his angels? The answer to that is no. It's a rhetorical question. No, there's no number to them. But one great day, all of them are coming with him in glory at the second coming. Now, don't be like some of these wise guys who want to try to predict the second coming, okay? Don't do that. Because no one knows when that's going to be. There's been enough, enough of that silliness going on where they say, well, the second coming is going to be on October the 3rd or whatever. Uh, don't do that. Because no one knows when the second coming of Christ will be. No one knows. But at the same time, it will be let's say, the terminal event. It's the last one. It's the terminal event. And all the holy angels with him. I wish I knew more about angels. I really do. I, I'm sure you think about the angels and when you read about the angels of God and, and the work that they do, I wish I knew more about the angels. 
Sir. Yeah. Well, he told the guy, he said, don't you know I could have brought a legion of angels down here to defend me? And so uh, there's just no number to the angels. I wish I knew more about them. They are created spiritual beings. They are created spiritual beings. We are created physical beings. And I'm not a spiritual being, I'm a physical being. I have a soul which is spiritual which will face the judgment of God. But the angels are created spiritual beings. And there's a lot of things we could talk about with regard to angels. And I really didn't mean to focus on the angels that much. But when I see this passage in 25 and 3, is there any number to his troops? You know, it makes me think, well, you know, it's amazing about the angels of God. And then somebody's asked me a question about the origin of Satan and that kind of thing. And all of that, and we can just go as deep into that as we can and we'll never be able to answer it fully or completely. How the angels do the work of God, where the angels are, where the angels providentially, God providentially cares for us. We pray for God's providential care in our lives, angels carrying that out, how they do that, I don't know. All right, upon whom does his light not rise? Well, of course, it's, his point is that everybody sees the light of God. It's uh, it's perceptive to all, penetrating to all, the light of God. His light is seen by all who live and, and on the earth. How uh, then can a man be just with God? How can one argue with God? How can one uh, actually be clean in the sight of God? Basically is what he's trying to say. And he's wanting to apply this to Job. Certainly you can't be clean before God, Job. How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? In other words, we've all sinned. Well, he's right on that point. If that's the point he's making here, Romans 3, 23, all have sinned, all are guilty of sin. <clears throat> but it's his application of the matter that I disagree with. And that application being that he's saying, Job, you're guilty of sin. That's the reason why you're suffering. If even uh, the moon has no brightness and the stars are not put in his sight, how much less man than that maggot and the son of man that worm? Hmm. Uh, what do you reckon he's getting at here? Keep in mind this is poetry. What is he getting at here? This is not history. This is poetry. Probably referring to the weakness of man the frailness of man, all that we'd have to agree with. I'd hate to describe, describe it in that fashion as the maggot and the worm, but at the same time, he's conveying the idea that man is very weak and man is very frail, and we'd have to say yes to that. Now, I wonder why this only has six verses. And there I go again, thinking about things I cannot answer. But I wonder why. I can't help it. That's the way... Uh, that's when they cut me out and they sewed me back together. That's how they put me together. I ask these things in my mind and I just wonder why. Yes, sir? It says, uh, how much less man? And it says, in the sun. Hmm. Humanity. We're not talking about Jesus here. We're talking about humanity now. Simply humanity. 
Now, Jesus would use that phrase about himself. He surely would, the Son of Man, referring to his humanity. And uh, that's a phrase we come up with here in verse 6. And the Son of Man, humanity. Humanity is weak. Human race is frail. Um, we'd have to agree with that, that part. I wonder why this thing is so short. I got an idea. Has anybody got an idea? Hmm? Maybe he's tired of talking. Maybe he said enough. Maybe he said all he knows to say. And I'm sure Job is happy that he's finished. Now, I don't know that's the case. The Bible doesn't tell me why it's only six verses here. I got an idea. He's, uh, that's all he's got. I've said everything I got. I don't have anything else to say. Maybe so. I don't know. And so this gives Job the opportunity to jump in chapter 26 which is Job's third reply to Bildad. But it is unusual, wouldn't you think, that we have these long discussions with regard to these Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar, and now we got at the end of the third cycle, we're coming to that, we got this Bildad the Shuhite who has only a six-verse speech. It's unusual, I think, and maybe that might be the reason I can only speculate. Any man, I'm happy to listen to your comment and reason about it as well. Then Job responded, chapter 26. Job, Sir. Well, maybe so. Maybe so. Now, that, that's a reasonable consideration. Maybe just so sick, and we know that that's true. He's told them, just be quiet and listen to me for a while. And so maybe he's just speaking over him and say, be quiet and listen to me. Let me explain this to you. Yes, ma'am. Verse 2 is a slap in the face to the face of this guy. Uh, yeah. Well, he, he oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, see, if we, were in, uh, if we were in literature class, we call it irony. I'm, I'm like you. It's more of a slap in the face, isn't it? Irony, sarcasm, what a help you are to the weak. <laughs> it's pretty clear he's being sarcastic, isn't he? This is a slap in the face. I think you're right. How you have saved the arm without strength. What counsel you have given to one without wisdom. What helpful insight you have abundantly provided. This guy's pretty tough, too. This Job can dish it out, um, and it looks like that's what he's trying to do. Um, if man is weak, you're the weak one, Bildad. If man is weak, worm, maggot, you know, that kind of thing that we're talking about in chapter 25, you're the weak one. What a help you are to the weak. If man is weak, what a help you are to him. You know, how you have saved the arm without strength. What counsel you have given to one without wisdom. What helpful insight you have abundantly provided. To whom have you uttered wor words and whose spirit was expressed through you. I wonder what he's saying there. Verse 4. It is a question. You're right. Did somebody inspire you to say that? Or are you just 
talking off the top of your head. Now that's just putting it in everyday language that I can understand. But I think that's what he said. Did somebody inspire you to say that? Or are you just talking off the top of your head? And I think I've seen some preachers sometimes who got up and preached and it sounded like to me they're just talking off the top of their head. I don't think that they're really, they haven't really studied the matter and considered it very carefully. Uh, he's certainly talking about in chapter 26, God's majesty as he begins in verse five, but before he continues or gets into that point, I think we have to consider the irony in verses one through four. Very sarcastic, very sarcastic with regard to these particular matters. Uh, notice the word weak in verse two and strength. And then in verse three, wisdom. Uh, these are emphasis of these particular passages which are given to us in, Bil in Job's response to Bildad. Now, he's gonna talk about God's greatness now. And he's right on the money on this. We cannot quibble or argue with Job as to what he's saying here. The departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Um, who would the departed spirits be? Now, don't make me do all the work here. Help me out with some of this. Who? Departed spirit would be what? A dead person. The departed spirits are the dead. Even the dead tremble with the notion of God. The departed spirits tremble under the waters. Under the waters would be in... You know, it's just another way of saying in the grave, in the, in the realm of departed spirits. Sometimes it'll use the word Sheol. New Testament counterpart to that is Hades, the realm of departed spirits. Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives us some insight into the other side with regard to the rich man and Lazarus. And that's what he's referring to here. Uh, you know, even those who are in Sheol. Now, how would he know that? The departed spirits tremble under the waters. Under the waters simply is a reference to Sheol. And he uses Sheol in verse six, and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him. That simply means God knows what goes on there. You can't hide. To be naked is simply where God, it is revealed. God knows it. You can't hide from God even in the place of the, uh, of the dead. The state of the dead. Now how would Job know that? The only way he would know that, of course, is by inspiration that God has revealed this to him. Naked is Sheol before him. How would he even know there is a Sheol? How would he even know that there is a place for departed spirits? The only way he could know that is but God has revealed it to him. And Abaddon has no covering. And that's just another name. It's sort of a poetic name for Sheol, Abaddon. We talk about the same place. So we got a pretty insightful guy here, verse five. The departed spirits under the waters, naked as Sheol, and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Yeah. 
Well, now, there's some people who say it's flat. Have you heard of that? Do they still have that flat earth society uh, people? I don't know if that's still out there or not, but there are people who believe the earth was flat. And, of course, the ancients thought that the earth was flat. And, uh, but you're right. They proved it's round. And you know how I know it's round? Because I saw the guy, John Glenn, orbit the earth, and the technology at the time showed that the earth, you could see the earth while he's going around it. And I could see the earth is round. It's not flat. Yeah. Well, there is a man in the moon, right? Are you talking about that or another guy? Okay, you're talking about Neil Armstrong. That's who you're talking about. Neil Armstrong went to the, got out and walked on the moon, right? And it was, it was round, right? <laughs> yeah, ma'am. Right, right. He understood that. The amazing thing to me is he understands that the earth hangs on nothing. Now that to me is amazing that Job would know that. How would he know that? The only way he could know that. Now I know it because I saw it. And who was it? Scott Carpenter? He was the first one to go up. Neil Armstrong? I can't name them all, of course, but I remember when Scott Carpenter went off and that thing took off from Cape Canaveral and I was thinking when I was a kid, I'd back out of that thing if I could. If that was me, I'd back out of that. I'd back out of that. I think I remember I was in the fourth grade and Scott Carpenter's going up in a rocket and I thought, man, I'd back out of that if I could do it. Um, and then uh, John Glenn, I remember him orbiting the earth first time to orbit the earth. And, uh, and like you say, Neil Armstrong to land on the moon. I remember that. We were watching that on television. My grandfather never believed it. He thought it looked more like Moore County, Tennessee than the moon. And he never, and he never really believed that uh, he landed on the moon. And he said, those rocks look, like a lo look a lot like Moore County, Tennessee. I said, well, you know, there's no way I can convince him otherwise. But at any rate, uh, my point is this. This ancient man had been told something by God, the Holy Spirit. And he's writing about the earth hanging on nothing. Now, you know what they felt like in his day. The earth was on the back of a great tortoise. And the great tortoise, now what the tortoise was walking on, I don't know. But at any rate, they were saying that the earth is on the back of a great tortoise. Or, a little later in, the, in history, it's on the shoulders of a great giant by the name of Atlas. Or, it's resting on four columns and uh, that sort of thing. Sort of like a globe in somebody's library would be in a, a, a case or a frame. And what that is resting on, I don't know why they didn't think about that particular matter. But this man says... The earth is resting on nothing. He says, he stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. And the point that I'm thinking about is, if the Bible were a product of its time, wouldn't it have included some of these 
ideas about the earth being on the back of a tortoise, which was the common view of the day, or the earth was flat, which was a common view, or the earth is sitting on four great posts or four great columns, which was a common view, but the Bible doesn't make those mistakes. Now let me make another point that's important for us to understand, and that is the Bible is not a scientific textbook. It's not. That's not its purpose. It's not a purpose about geometry. Its purpose is not about mathematics. Its purpose is not about biology. Its purpose is not about science, chemistry, and all of the different physical sciences that we study and you all know so well. But when it refers to those matters, it does so accurately. It doesn't make the common mistakes of the day which is a powerful argument with regard to the inspiration of the Bible. If the Bible were merely a human document, these man-made mistakes and these ideas that men have, which really weren't correct, and we know that today, would have crept into it, would have crept into the text, would have crept into the story, but they don't. Now here's a guy that says he stretches out the north over empty space. And he knows something about that because God inspired him in that regard. I think the Bible, I know the Bible, is scientifically accurate. And we could delve into that and go deeper into that particular point. And it would be good for us to do that as we would go away with a deeper faith and a deeper confidence in our Bible. That the Bible indeed is the inspired word of God, as you had mentioned. Now he's not through here. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. So what do you suppose he's getting at in verse 8? Yeah, yeah, well, evaporation, whatever. You guys know all about that stuff. I don't. You guys know all about evaporation and all that kind of thing. And uh, the cloud doesn't burst, but when it gets ready and God wants the rain to come, the rain comes. And so if you put so much water in a vessel, what would it do? It would burst. But he said, the clouds don't burst. The clouds hold that water. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. Sometimes the cloud will cover up the brightness of the moon. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. And what do you suppose he's getting at there? That circle got my interest in verse 10. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters. Maybe. Well, probably so. The horizon looks like a vaulted type of sky, maybe. Yeah. The horizon, I think, is a good idea there. The circle, and it does look like a circle, doesn't it? And, of course, the uh, circle of the earth is something that we've already seen and understood. At the boundary of light and darkness, as light and darkness comes and goes, and what is that, uh, the rotation, revolution of the earth, the axis, and all that kind of stuff, the tilt of the earth is just exactly right. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. Keep in mind, I'm in poetry here, so what would uh, pillars of heaven tremble be? 
smoke, the pillars of heaven tremble, and are amazed at his rebuke. I had the idea he's talking about the mountains here. You know, you could have thunder and lightning and earthquake and all that sort of thing, and they tremble. The pillars of heaven tremble, verse 11, and are amazed at his rebuke. Uh, he quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. Now, i got to do some explaining on Rahab, but don't let that bother you. God uh, controls the raging sea. Now, this Rahab is an ancient god, a foreign god. That doesn't mean that Job believed in it. But just like um, this Leviathan thing and the behemoth is going to come up a little later, still it comes into our text. We've got a very ancient text here. And he's saying, these things didn't do it. He shattered this false god. And so he's saying, and by his understanding, he shattered Rahab. And so we'll study a little bit more about that. I'm going to put that off some more until I have a little better understanding of some material that is to come. By his breath, the heavens are cleared. Well, obviously, it's not literally his breath. This is poetic language. It is a means by which he clears the sky. His hand has pierced the, fleeting, the fleeing serpent. Again, we need to hold off on that one just a little bit because we're talking about some false gods here that God handles and destroys. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Showing the great power of God over the world and uh, the created world. So it's a common way of expressing the power of God, isn't it? We see it in other passages. Behold, these are the fingers, the fringes of his ways. And how faint a word we hear of him, but his mighty thunder, who can understand? I wish I could hear from God. I would like to have an explanation over this, but when he... When he roars with his thunder, we understand how great and how powerful he is. So, we got a beautiful passage here in Job chapter 26 talking about the majesty of God and the power of God and the greatness of God. I don't know that you have another passage quite like it. And uh, there are many passages in the Bible that talk about that point, of course, but I don't know that there's another one that expresses it in such a poetic fashion as this one does here. In the mind of a man in the dawn of time which is what is amazing to me. This is not John Milton. This is Job in the dawn of time, the early period of time. He's talking that way about God. And God hasn't changed. And what he says here hadn't changed about God. It's still that way. Well, a comment from anyone along these lines. Yes, sir, Danny. I think you got a good point there. Yeah. I think you got a good point. If you'll remember what Danny's saying there, he asked uh, Bildad, now who inspired you to talk the way you did? But he's very, it's very clear that he's inspired by God here to speak the way he was. It's the only way you can give an explanation as to why he knows what he knows. Now, I, I know a little bit about the rotundity of the earth because I saw it on TV one time. But this man knows something about it because he's inspired of God. And God revealed it in that particular fashion. 
Pardon? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. That's certainly an old saying, and yeah. Uh, Farmer's Almanac. Don't plant your corn in the light of the moon and all that kind of thing. I don't know. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, I, Gail's got a good point there. This is just the fringe. Uh, there's a lot more to God than just this. A lot more to God than what we know and understand. That's the thing about going to heaven. Being able to experience full fellowship with God. That's the thing about going to heaven. Um, where a man cannot do that here and now, but over there he will be able to. In chapter 27, as I move along, my time's run out, but in chapter 27... Job is back at it again. He affirms his innocence. I'm innocent. He will never give that point up. He's not going, okay, you guys convinced me. No, he's innocent. Then Job continued his discourse and said, as God lives who has taken away my right and the Almighty who has embittered my soul for as long as life is in me, and the breath of God is in my nostrils. My lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare you right, referring to the three friends, till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. That's a powerful statement coming from a man who suffered such amazingly. Uh, suffered in such agonizing way and if you'll notice the you there is a second person plural pronoun he's saying you must be from Tennessee because he's saying you all there for far be it from me that I should declare you all right and and so he's talking about all three friends and uh, he's saying I'll never give up even if I die I'll never give up my integrity I am innocent and of course he was I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. He'll never say they're right. That's what he's saying. He will never say the three friends are right because they're wrong. Well, he talks about the wicked again, and we're going to wait, I think, by verse 7. I'm in chapter 27. I'm beginning to get into some interesting things with regard to the matter of the book, and we'll have to wait, I guess. We have more time to talk about it and think about it, and I do appreciate your comments and your questions here tonight, as it is helpful for all of us. And, you know, if you have a question, chances are somebody else got that same question in their mind. Please feel free to ask it. Doesn't mean I can answer it, but please feel free to ask it, and uh, uh, we will entertain the discussion and try to learn as much as we possibly can. Jim, Sir. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <coughs> Well, you're never going to convince everybody. And I'm convinced there are many atheists out there, not so much because 
it's logically, logically presented to them in a logical fashion. Now, there are some that are that way, but the majority, in my view, are not that way. They're atheists because they don't want God to tell them what to do. They don't want God to tell them what to be. They don't want God to say you're going to be lost if you live this way. They're atheistic and they reject the divine will of God and the existence of God because they don't want there to be a God. Because if there's a God and I admit to that, then I've got to admit he's telling me I'm wrong and that I've got to change my ways and I don't want to do that. And I think that's behind a lot of it. Now, there are atheistic scholars out there that try to look at it rationally and very logically, though there is no argument for atheism. The only argument that they have is the argument of human pain and suffering. And that's not really Job's point. Job's point is, though we're happy to talk about that, Job's point is the idea, why do the righteous suffer? He presupposed God exists. You have seen a wonderful discussion about God in this book tonight. And he knows that God exists. But why am I suffering? Why am I going through this? And that's the takeaway for us. Because you and I may go through this kind of suffering. I don't know. I hope and pray we don't. But we may. But let me tell you this. It's a lot better to read about it than to have to go through it. And it's a lot better to read about it and get prepared for it ahead of time than have to face it without any foundation whatsoever. All right, somebody else before we go tonight. Before we go tonight, somebody else. Yes, sir. Right. No, no, no. Yeah. 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 Very dogmatic about it. Right. Very forceful and direct in his speech. And I, uh, thank you for bringing that up, Danny. I think there is a very definite uh, change of uh, attitude and approach there because in the beginning of chapter 27, he's stating categorically, uh-uh, I'm not guilty, and I'll never admit to you all that I am. So there certainly is a very definite change in the, in the way it's presented. Yes, ma'am? Okay. Oh, I, I, I think I understand what you're saying. Like under the waters in verse 5. I took it just to mean life's other side. The shield. And that's why I said that. Because shield's in the very next phrase. Um, under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is shield before him. So I kind of connected those two together. And I looked at it as he's probably talking about under the waters. And I can't remember the word for it. Uh, T-home, 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 the depths, the depths under the waters. The depths here, I think, refers to the dead, the place of the dead, T-home. All right, somebody else. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, same imagery. Of course, now we're looking at a much later book, but I think it's still the same thought is conveyed there. I think you're right. Thank you for that. Somebody else. Well, thank Yes, sir.
Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Any should perish. Exactly right. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the long suffering of God. So now you're right, though. The, the wicked will get theirs. God will punish the wicked. I guarantee you that. In his good way and in his good time. And I think uh, answer to Job's question here about why do the wicked get by with what they do. Only temporarily due to the mercy and the long suffering of God and the patience of God. But now, hey, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the patience of God. I'm thankful for that. But there comes a point in time where the patience of God comes to an end. And we have to face the consequences of our sin. And I don't want to have to do that. Repent of it. Get over it. And get it out of my life. So that I don't have to face it. That's a wonderful thing about understanding New Testament Christianity. I can be forgiven of all that. I am forgiven of all that. And I'm, I'm not burdened down with the weight of transgression and guilt. And things, yeah. I'm ashamed of, I've forgotten about that because of the blood of Christ and the gospel, which must be obeyed, which must be faithfully lived. Well, thank you for your helpful discussion tonight. We will begin back in chapter 27. It's not an easy book, but I do enjoy it. I do enjoy talking about it and thinking about it, and your conversation certainly helps. Anybody else before we go? I hope you have a wonderful day tomorrow friends, family, that kind of thing. And so everybody seems to be doing well. Why don't we end it with a word of prayer, okay? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the day and its many blessings, and we're thankful for this great book of the Bible. We're thankful for all of the Bible. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you continue to bless us in your wonderful way. We're thankful for all the physical blessings of life and especially the spiritual blessings of life. Thankful for the fact that we are in the church by means of the new birth in your kingdom, Heavenly Father. Forgive us of our sins when we're wrong and when we fail you as we repent of them. And in the end, bring us to glory in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.